Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with one of the greatest big men in basketball history, Hall of Famer, Bill Walton. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today yeah, I'm- here we go. Here we-, in, coach. here we go. Here we go. Today on the program, I sit down with a basketball legend. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, I'm sitting down. You're sitting down. I'm, I'm we're here. both sitting down, Billy. You're the legend. You're from... Your roots come from San Diego, which is my hometown. Your dad started at Hoover High School. Your uh, your grandfather, Ray, was at Hoover High School. Your dad right. was at Crawford. Right. And that was the neighborhood that I grew up in. And so I know all about your family history. But the only thing I ask today, Brett, as we move forward, and who knows as we ricochet through the universe where this is going to end up, but please don't tell me who won today's Tour de France stage because this is the penultimate stage, and I'm going to be watching it later this evening on the tape delay. And so it is so exciting. It's coming right down to the end. And today they are climbing the mountains. And that's what we're going to do right here on the Boomcast. I or love whatever, it, Bill. Whatever you call this show. <laughs> the Boom Podcast. I love okay. it. Um, biggest challenges for Bill Walton growing up. Now, Billy, I know you're close to seven feet tall. You're a big man. I got a lot of big buddies, a teammate of mine. Baseball, not as big as basketball. Richie Sexton was a big teammate of mine, big hitter, 6'9", and I used to walk around with him. He said, yeah, Brett, these are kind of things I got to deal with in life. What was the big pitcher's name that came out of Princeton, the big right-handed guy, more recently than you? Chris Young. Chris Young. I played with Randy Johnson. He was tall. They were tall. But they're not tall, tall like you are. I want to know the challenges for you, because I'm assuming as a kid, you were always a big kid. You always had big feet. I was thinking about you taking a shower last night. I'm like, how does Bill Walton take a shower here? You I shower outdoors. I shower oh. outdoors. We okay. live in our home, not too far from where Ted Williams grew up. He grew up on Utah Street, which is just a little bit to the east of where I am on the north edge of Balboa Park. And then Hoover High School is just beyond there. San Diego High School is just one mile to the south of us, uh, where the Nettles family all went after they went to St. Augustine's High School. But I love being tall. And I I was tall from the early days. I I was your size at birth. And so (laughs) here I was when I... Uh, when I really started to grow was in high school. I was 13 and 14, and I uh, was playing against some really old guys at the gym at Helix High School where I went, which is even east of Crawford. I was super lucky in my life. No disparaging comments about Crawford High School. I'm undefeated lifetime against Crawford High School, but I was our family home was one block from the San Diego line. I would have gone to Crawford had that line been drawn one block further east, but I got to go to Helix High School. And when I was 13 and 14, I was always playing basketball. And basketball was the easiest thing in my life. And I was playing against some really old guys. I always played up and I was torching them. I was having a big day. They didn't like it. So they took me down with the old 
one, two, high, low. And I ended up in a heap on the ground with a torn up knee. And I had to have my first operation when I was 14 years old. I went into the operation at six, one. I came out of the operation at six, seven and a half, three months later. And uh, the rest is history. I was a totally different player when I came out of the operation. And I, I grew up playing basketball. My parents, you come from an athletic family. That is the antithesis of my life. My parents, zero interest in sports. Greatest Greatest parents ever, but zero interest in sports. But I found basketball when I was eight years old. It was the easiest part of my life. Then I grew when I was 13 and 14, and my game changed. I went from wanting to be Jerry West, a Pete Maravich-type player, always had the ball in my hands, then to, to then having Bill Russell as my favorite player. And then I just kept growing and growing and growing. And so while basketball was the easiest part of my life, Academics were the second easiest. My parents were fantastic, Brent, in terms of the culture we had, the family, the team and everything and academics and education. My mom was a librarian. My dad was a social worker, an adult educator and a music teacher. And so straight A student, top athlete all the way through from the very, very beginning. My challenges have been orthopedic health. And I was born with birth defects in my feet. And then uh, I ground those feet into dust. I tore up my knees. I broke my spine. I've had 39 orthopedic operations. And uh, so here I am now at 69 years old. My health is better than it's ever been. And uh, with UC San Diego Health System and all these great surgeons they have, and the technological revolution that's enabling this Boone podcast, that has really taken over in our health systems here. And UC San Diego is right at the front of that. And so everything is going great for me. But my biggest challenge also has a tie to baseball because I'm a lifelong stutterer. I could not say hello. I could not say thank you until I was 28 years old. Learning how to speak is my greatest accomplishment and your worst nightmare. And I learned how to speak from Marty Glickman, who was the broadcaster of the day in New York. And Marty did pre- and post-game shows for the baseball team there, the Dodgers and the Yankees. And so, But Marty, he was the broadcaster for every sport in New York. And you look up any list, man, but Marty Glickman comes in at the very top. And I remember the day that Marty passed away because Marty and I became fast friends. And, and he changed my life as much as anybody ever did in just a five-minute conversation teaching me how to learn how to speak. And so I was there at Coach Wooden's house up at the mansion on Margate in Encino, California, on the day that Marty died. And so the phone is ringing off the hook because this time, Coach Wooden, he, you know, he's well up there in years. And when you're the old guy in the room, they always come to you for obituary. And Coach Wooden, he became the king of obituary because he knew everybody and he was the only guy still left standing. And so they called Coach Wooden and they're getting all the quotes about how wonderful Marty was and how he was able to how he was able to overcome the adversity that ruined his life, the anti-Semitism from the Berlin Olympics and everything, and his ability to recover from that and to build a life and to spend a life of service and servant leadership for other people to get their lives going. And so Coach Wooden is going on and on and on about how great Marty Glickman is. And then he takes a pause because he was a master speaker and a master of the English language. That was his true love. Coach Wooden was English. He started in engineering. 
He was on an engineering scholarship at Purdue in the 30s. And he was he was the first great player. He wanted to be an engineer, but the engineering program to maintain his scholarship, they needed him to be a student on campus during the summer. And Coach Wooden, who came from nothing, Coach Wooden grew up on a farm without electricity, without plumbing, without running water. Coach Wooden, he needed a job. He needed a job in the summer to pay for things that were not covered by his scholarship. There were not NIL deals in those days. And so when Coach Wooden is, is raving on and on about Marty, he comes to a pause and there's dead air for a moment. And, and, and we're like, okay, what's he going to say now? And then Coach Wooden, he leans into the interviewer and he says, but I'm really mad at Marty Glickman. And the reporters writing it all down, wouldn't I rate at Glickman on death? And so you, well, how could you possibly be mad at Marty Glickman? And Coach Wooden said, Marty Glickman taught Bill Walton how to speak, but he didn't teach him how to stop. And then Coach Wooden hung up on him, and that was that was the end of the interview. Wow, that that's that's very and, and cool. how lucky I've been to have all these remarkable, remarkable figures in my life. And I was just thinking about Ted Williams, who just grew up here on Utah Street, chose chose to go to Hoover, where your grandfather Ray went before Ted. I mean, after Ted. But Ted did not think he was going to make the team at San Diego High. San Diego High, which is just down the street here, San Diego High has more back baseball players, more baseball players in the major leagues than any other high school in all of San Diego. And they have 17 of them. Now, San Diego is the number one producer of baseball talent in the state of California. And I'm a proud Californian. I know you grew up in the Orange County area because your family was part of the Angels at the time and moving around in, in, in baseball and everything. And then you went to USC. And so you know how popular baseball is here and the fantastic experiences that you've had with this remarkable family that you're a part of in this great culture. And I was thinking about Ted Williams. This Ted Williams story very much like mine, although Ted's parents were not that involved with his life they were busy and the dad was off and on and mom was working like crazy all the time. But Ted, he lived just a couple of blocks from the park, North Park Playground, which is just right over here to my left. And I go by it all the time on my bike. And that's where Ted spent his formative years. And the director of the North Park Playground was this figure, this father figure to all these guys and boys uh, who, who were just trying to create dreams for themselves. And that well, the, that dream for Ted Williams, man, that became everybody else's nightmare because I loved I loved the, uh, the David Halberstam books about baseball that he would write. The Summer of 49, October 64, and then the teammates books. And I had a great, great privilege. But uh, of knowing David Halberstam as a friend in a professional relationship at the beginning that developed into a friendship for until the day he died. I was supposed to see him on the day he died. But he, anyway, I grew up in the parks too. Not because my parents weren't involved, but because I was not going to sit at home, man. We live in San Diego where, where you live outside all the time. And I'm most comfortable outside or in the gym and where the ceiling is like really far up there. Now you, the sport you chose to play, you play outside all the time. I don't think I could have done that because 
you know, I, I have such fair skin. You know, I just I, I cannot go out in the sun. And as the, the older I get, the harder that becomes. But I'm still alive and I'm still going. And UC San Diego Health is just carrying me on. But my first coach, my first coach, he was a local fireman. And he had three children at the same school we all went to, which was three blocks from Crawford High School, where your dad went. And which was a mile and a half from Hoover High School, where your grandfather went, where I won at Hoover High Girls Gym. I won my first basketball championship in the fifth grade. We torched all the sixth grade teams and we won the championship. And so, but my first coach, he was the volunteer, the volunteer coach at our elementary school for 59 years of his life. And when he passed away a few summers ago, I cannot tell you if he knew anything about sports, man, but that guy knew life and he knew fun and he knew joy and he knew teammates. And, you know, he embodied the value and the power of sports team and community. And he made us who we are, the thousands, the countless thousands of young people that that coach Rocky, he touched, you know, he impacted, he, he inspired, he directed, and it was just absolutely fantastic because he was the fireman the whole time. And he just told the fire station, he said, Hey man, uh, I'm down at the park with the children. There's a fire come by and get me. And if anybody complains, just tell them to come and see me, but I'm down at the park with the children. And, and Rocky was just everybody you've ever known in San Diego knows Rocky. That's very cool. And, and you mentioned, you know, you talked about Ted Williams, uh, yeah. Quite a bit. And, and I'll tell you, Bill, growing up through Grandpa Ray, who left right. us after in, in 2004. But I was very close with my Grandpa Ray. And he would tell stories. And he's a San Diego native like yourself, born right. and raised. And uh, he couldn't he couldn't talk enough about Ted Williams. I'll tell you, during my tenure as a, as a big leaguer in the 90s and the early 2000s. So Ted, even though he grew up in San Diego, you know, he quickly made it to the big leagues and then right. Boston and stayed there and then spent most of his time down in Florida when he wasn't out fishing all the time. But he would make regular trips to San Diego and I would see him and sit by his side and listen to all the stories and everything. And then to have the privilege of not only being on some of these really great basketball teams in the history of the sport, but to just to know so many of the broadcasters and the coaches and all the different people. And when I think, man, of, of those of those coaches that I have had, the baseball coaches that, that I've got to know over the course of my life, Sparky Anderson, Tommy Lasorda, uh, Billy Martin, okay, I guess, you know, Earl Weaver, Dick Williams, Tony LaRusa still going out there, Whitey Herzog, Jim Leyland, Joe Torrey, Jim Fregosi, Lou Pinella, Bobby Cox, Mike Shosha. I mean, these are all legends of, of teaching and, and inspiring and leading and guiding young people to a better tomorrow. And, and that doesn't even begin to touch on the, all the, the basketball coaches or the football coaches that I've been uh, involved with over the course of my life. And I was super lucky. I had an older brother. He's no longer with us. He died of football uh, just a short time before COVID started and taking everybody. But uh, Bruce, who went to UCLA ahead of me, and Bruce was an excellent uh, football player, All-America, UCLA, academic All-America, a uh, great high school basketball player at Helix. Uh, Coach Wooden wanted Bruce to play on the on the UCLA basketball team, but but Bruce looked around and he said, hey, you guys already got Swen Nader. You don't need me out there to protect Billy. And I'll have more fun with all the girls in the in the stands at the games. I won't be able to meet the girls if I'm on the team and sitting on the bench over there. 
but Bruce uh, was on the Dallas Cowboys. And so Bruce and I are the only brother combination. I know your family is just went to, went to a Super Bowl. Right. So Bruce and I are the only brother combination in the history of the world. And that covers a lot that, that have played in the Super Bowl and won the NBA championship. And he was the one that played in the Super Bowl. Uh, football. Yeah. That was, that was, uh, that was not for me. I, mean, I tried baseball too. I tried baseball. I liked it, uh, but it just, uh, I, I, I like more action. I, I, I'm, I like fasting. I like John Fogarty singing center field. I like John Fogarty singing. It's almost Saturday night. I like John Fogarty. We're going to go see John Fogarty, Laurie and I. We spend a lot of time with live music venues, and uh, and we got uh, we're going to see John uh, three or four times this summer already. And then we just got off the Grateful Dead tour. Man, that was just over the top incredible. And so I would, you know, all the great new baseball stadiums, you know. But, David Stern, the most important man in the history of all basketball, never shot a basket, but he made a game into a business. And the way that David brought all these remarkably successful business people into the ownership positions, I mean, his legacy, David Stern's, is over the top in everything that he did for basketball. Maybe as important as anything else is the ownership groups that he brought in and the stadiums that they've all built and all these palaces that every franchise has right now. And now that is going on in baseball as well. I know there's uncertainty in Tampa and Oakland and where they're going to play. And they're trying to get the public money uh, for baseball stadiums, which I am not into at all. I I like the model of the uh, Golden State Warriors, private finance. Uh, for the stadiums. I mean, if, if you're if you're rich enough to own the team, build your own stadium, right? But with, with the Grateful Dead, I've been to Fenway Park, to Wrigley Field, to Philadelphia, whatever they call that stadium, right? And then, but I just got back, Lori and I just got back from City Field, where the Mets play, because the Dead Tour just ended. Now, they call themselves Dead and Co. right now, but I just refer to them as the Grateful Dead for people who may not know who Dead and Co. is. Everybody knows who the Grateful Dead are. Anyway, so we were at City Field for the final two shows. They played 19 shows on the tour, and uh, and Lori and I got to go to seven of them. The first, the first one at Dodger Stadium, over the top, incredible. The Dodgers took such great care of us, man, incredible. And then up to Shoreline for two, up to Boulder for two, the launching pad to the universe, and, and we're there. Just it's just an over the top show, and the crowd, fifty thousand fans, just going nuts, right? Looking, looking for what's next in life. And I turned to Lori and said, "Hey, man, we got to go to more of these." And so we went to the final two at City Field, and on the final night, and, and the people at City Field, what a beautiful stadium! Got to take the subway there, and it was just great. And they were all so nice and friendly and accommodating. The shows were spectacular. And on the final night, seventy thousand fans just going crazy. And the Grateful Dead just driving it as only they can. A huge stadium show. And John Mayer, John Mayer that night, he became Michael Jordan. It was it wow. was so spectacular. I was there. Anybody else who was there will never forget that show because that guy, he, he stood as tall as anyone's ever stood. Very cool. Yeah. And and you you mentioned your brother Bruce and, and you had some other siblings. I have some I have two questions for you sure. about, about your childhood. And I thought it was fascinating when I was doing my doing my due diligence on Bill Walton. And that was you had a family band where you right. played the trombone. No, no, no. Bruce, that, Bruce played the trombone. What'd you play? 
I played the baritone, the French horn, the trumpet. I I could play all of the horn instruments, and and so could Bruce. But he he uh, this is all under my father's. He was uh, a music teacher. Your father, right? He was a social worker in the daytime, uh, downtown San Diego, and then in the evening he was he was an adult educator at San Diego High, San Diego City College, and also at Roosevelt junior high, which is now called Roosevelt Middle School, which is just two blocks from our house where we live. And so it all rolls into one. And so my dad, who loved music, I mean, he, he, he couldn't believe that he had to spend all his time going to these, uh, you know, irrelevant, meaningless, wasted time sporting events to watch his children play. But he did it because he was such a great dad. And But he just loved playing music and he loved singing. And he, he could he could carry the band. He could lead the band. He could play any instrument, just pick it up and start playing. He was masterful on the piano. He could sight read. He could play by ear. He could sing. He did it all. And so my sister played the flute. Uh, she went on to to... Uh, be an athlete at Cal. And then uh, my younger brother, he played the saxophone and the reed instruments, the clarinet and so forth. And and then uh, my older brother, Bruce, and I, we shared the horns. We passed the horns all the way around. And then on the weekends, my dad would, he would be the music teacher when he wasn't driving us to the games. But, he, you know, he, he went to the games a lot, but uh, I like to get there early, so I'd be on my bike. I'd be on my bike and get going. You asked me at the beginning of this, I think it was today, you asked me about the difficulty of showers. Mm-hmm. We have outdoor showers here in our house in San Diego. Wow. We've been in our house for 43 years. I've never taken a shower indoors. And, you know, the weather here is it's very, very nice. Climate change is devastating San Diego and all of California. Really, the whole planet is just hot, humid, muggy, and but it never rains anymore. And water is a huge, huge. I, I know you're in Seattle today. It's still raining there, right? Seattle is beautiful. I just left San Diego on Monday. You know, the weather's been great there uh, recently. I came up to Seattle. It's like I never I never left. And they said uh, they thought I brought it with me because they they've had that. You know, usually it gets nice uh, starting about July 4th. And they said this year was about July 7th. But right now, today, 82, not a cloud in the sky. Beautiful. When I went across the. across the bridge to Lake Washington. And oh. as you know, by being up here, there's there's not a prettier place in the country on a, on a nice day. But then you got to do deal with those winners. Will you please tell my good friend Timothy Egan hello and also Daniel James Brown, two Seattle residents, man, who just have changed my life with their books. Absolutely fantastic. Daniel James Brown, The Boys in the Boat, under an indifferent sky facing the mountain, Timothy Egan, an endless <laughs> start with the, the good rain and go to the pilgrimage book and everything in between. So it's just so fun. I'm the lucky, you know, to have my mom be a librarian. I mean, that, that changed my life as much as anything because she was in charge of everything. My dad had no interest in money. My dad had no interest in business. He just liked helping people. My dad was a, top student at Cal himself. And he, but then he, he ended up fighting on the ground in uh, Europe in World War II, France and Germany. And he came home and he came home and he just never said a word about it, but spent the rest of his life trying to convince people to get along and quit the nonsense and live by the mantra. It's okay to disagree. Just don't be disagreeable. When everybody thinks alike, 
nobody thinks and just the greatest parents ever but my mom we didn't have a tv growing up and so and when we we, you know, we couldn't afford one in the early days it was a choice between food or tv and we chose food and so uh, but then when we finally got enough money and things started to you know grow and things were getting better for everybody in the 60s my mom said we have enough buy a tv yeah we're going to be cool how lucky are we we're going to be like everybody else with the tv and then she said but I've been doing lots of research at the library and I've concluded that there's nothing on television worth watching. So we're not going to get one. <laughs> but this was, right. this was before ESPN. This was before the, the sports came on the TV. Really interesting, though. You know, your your parents, you know, the yeah. music teacher and the librarian. And you said, especially your dad wasn't really into the sports, but being a good father, he, he supported it. He trucked you around because he had two two pretty big athletes sitting there right at Helix going on to the, to the highest level. Um, tell me about the San Diego Rockets. There's some story right, about right, the right. San Diego Rockets, a key and Bill yeah. Walton in high school. Right. So in 1967, I'm 14 years old and I turn my calendar year, uh, turns over at the, in November. So in the, in the spring and summer of 1967, I'm 14. Uh, it's, it's the summer of love in California. I'm, very close to going to my first Grateful Dead concert. I had been, I, I had grown to love sports because of my first coach, Rocky, and all the parts of Kalina Del Sol, a block and a half from Crawford High School, where your dad went to, you know, your grandfather. No, no. Gramps was at Hoover. Right. Gramps, okay. Gramps and uh, and Ted Williams were at Hoover. Yeah. Dad, dad was at Crawford where he met my mom. And, and then they've been and together St. Augustine and San Diego High. Yeah. Nettles was in my dad's wedding. I believe he was my dad's best man. Nice. What and I, and nice. I heard, do you know Tim Foley? Are you buddies with Tim Foley? I am buddies with Tim Foley. Yep. Dad, dad and Tim Foley. Very, very close. All right. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, continue. 14, I'm 14, 1967. And the San Diego Rockets become an expansion team in the ever expanding NBA. Now, in 1962, 1962, I found Chick Hearn, greatest broadcaster ever, on the AM radio, the transistor radio that we would all, always carry around in our pockets and take to bed with us every night. Vin Scully in the summertime, Chick Hearn all winter long. And so in 1962, though, after I found Chick, the then Los Angeles Chargers of the AFL moved Baron Van Baron Hilton down to San Diego. They didn't want to compete against the Rams. And so they come to San Diego and they choose as their practice facility, their, their, NF, their AFL practice facility, they choose Sunset Park, which is a public park a half a mile from our family home, right on the, on, on the banks, on the hills around Lake Murray, where we all grew up. And and so every day I'd ride my bike up there, ride my skateboard and just cling on the fence, hang on the fence. I'm nine years old. Right. And I'm uh, and I'm watching all these guys who all went on to become Hall of Famers. And, you know, that early Charger team was just phenomenal. And Sid Gilman is the coach and all these legendary players, Lance Allworth and Ron Mix and Ernie Ladd and Earl Faison and Keith Lincoln and Chuck Allen and just. You just name these guys, Paul Lowe, and just phenomenal players, Gary Garrison. 
and they would all come by and they had no idea. They were just little redheaded guys clinging on the fence and they'd come coming out in the field of practice and they'd just come by, rub my buzz haircut and they'd just say, hey, how you doing there? And, and then within the next four or five years, I became their friends and they really, and then they knew, okay, there's this, there's this redheaded guy in San Diego who's playing basketball now. And so now the Rockets in 67, five years later, after the Chargers come, San Diego becomes an NBA franchise and they all come in and I've got a key to the gym because I'm playing basketball all the time. And my best friend, his older brother, uh, in those days in California, uh, all the schools, every public school in, in California was open to the public, to the neighborhood. So, you know, whether you're at Crawford or Hoover, you're in that neighborhood, the gyms and the fields and the, the tennis courts, they're all open for anybody to just come and play anytime you want, as long as school's not in session. And so they would hire these college kids, these college students to be the park supervisor. And so my best friend's older brother was a college basketball player at San Diego State, which is just a mile away from our family home where my mom went to college, class of 1947. Our youngest son, Chris, went to college, class of the early 2000s. And so I was at Helix playing all the time, but it wasn't enough because, I, because they would close down at night. You know, at 8 o'clock at night, they'd close it down. But I wanted to keep playing, so I – finagle the key to the gym. And so when the Rockets showed up, they always, basketball players are always looking for a gym. And so they quickly found out that I had a key. And so they're calling me up all the time. And and one time in particular, the early days, it was, uh, it was Jim Barnett and Pat Riley and uh, Don Coges and John Block. I mean, legends to this day. And, and they're the first team there. And then soon to be joined by Rudy Tomjanovich, Elvin Hayes, Calvin Murphy, Stu Lance, all legends to this very day. And then the coaches and the basketball staff at the time, Pete Newell, Tex Winter, Alex Hannum, and Jack McMahon, all of them Hall of Famers. And here I am, 14 years old, playing with these guys, right, and having the time of my life. And so one day I'm lying on the, it's a hot summer day, lying on the family living room floor, just waiting for what's going to be next, waiting for John Fogarty to come out with a new song. And all of a sudden the phone rings and my mom is sitting in the chair, knitting, reading, listening to music. And, and she picks up the phone and there's this really deep voice on the other end. And he goes, is Billy there? And my mom says, who's this? And the guy goes, it's just tell Billy it's Big E on the phone, and I want him to open up the gym. And my mom cups her hand over the phone, looks down at me on the floor. Billy, who is this man? He's so old. He sounds so old. His name is Biggie. What, what are you doing? Is everything okay, Bill? I said, Mom, give me the phone. That's Elvin Hayes. That's Biggie Elvin Hayes. And so I took the phone from her and got on, and we scheduled the next time we we're all going to go play. Uh, to this day, I mean, Elvin Hayes, just incredible. incredible. I don't, I, I don't know too many people that have that story. You're, you're a high school kid, like you said. You're 14. You got the big boys calling you because you got the key to the gym. Right. Well, that, that's I, not a story I, everybody has. I, I also became the only high school player to ever make the U.S. national team, which is a, a, a longer story than we have uh, time for on this program because that's. Uh, uh, that's a, an all-encompassing story that changed my life. 
most of the stories in my life uh, have had just incredible impact. Most of them incredibly positive. And this this particular instance, when I made the U.S. national team as a high school player in 1970 at the height of the Vietnam War, and I was 17. The next youngest guy on the team was 24. They were all in the military. They were all subject to the draft. And it was at the same time, Brett, it was the best and the worst time of my life up to that point, because that was the first and really only time in my life that I had a jerk for a coach. And this guy, my coaches have all been like John Wooden and Chick Hearn and Lenny Wilkins and Jack Ramsey and Casey Jones and Gene Shue and Paul Silas and Don Chaney and Red Auerbach and Denny Kerr, all these Hall of Famers are my coaches, right? Super positive, super upbeat. Like, we get to play ball today. Let's go. What can I do to help you? And this this guy was just awful. I mean, he was he was the he was the worst of humanity. Although that bar has been lowered recently, yes, sir, that <laughs> bar is the worst of humanity. Oh my god! Good high school. Okay, so those kind of people. It seems to me as if they wake up. These people who were the the worst of the worst. It I've had a few. Like, I've had a few. It seems like they wake up and they say to themselves. What's the worst thing I can do for the world today? That's not me. I wake up, I say, what's the best thing I can do to make life better for other people, to lift the burden and to ease the pain? I'm a team guy. And I, you know, I grew up that way and I still am that way. And it, even though my life growing up, it, you know, they were always trying to push me to, to the individual glory, individual attention, uh, individual nonsense. And that's just not me. I'm a team guy. Bill Russell's my favorite player ever. I love Steve Nash. I love Larry Bird. I love, I love the guys, you know, the great players today. Uh, they, you know, we have six children, 14 grandchildren, Lori and I do. We got our hands full. Lori's parents live with us. They're 99 and 94. Just two days ago, uh, they, they celebrated their 70th wedding anniversary and it was just fantastic. And so I'm a family guy. And uh, and so here I, I had this tormented conflict my whole life, Brett, of, of, of people trying to push me into, you know, being an individual, you know, in a world of team. And, and, and that's just not me. And so I, I, I try my best to be just like I am. Everybody wants me to be just like them. And, and I think, you know, what a, what a high school experience you had you know we touched on 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 the guys from the rockets calling you but making the national team in high school only yeah. kid to ever do yeah. that uh i i found something you were in faces in the crowd on sports illustrated yes. <laughs> that's a lot for a kid of your age to handle all that in a short amount of time well, how, I, how did you how did you take that the basketball part was super easy the problem the, the problems i had were health always being injured and then the fact that I couldn't speak and I could not express myself and I could not make my own point and I could not, I could not deliver vocally what was going on in my mind. And to have the privilege of having a 32-plus year, take out the injured years when I couldn't broadcast, but the people I've had the remarkable privilege of working with and for I mean, and, and, and in no particular order, Ralph Lawler with the Clippers, 13 years, worst basketball ever, 
criminal business practices, but never had so much fun. And then at the national level with uh, Tom Hammond, uh, Greg Gumbel, and Snapper Jones, and Jim Gray, and the producer, Kevin Smolin, that we had, and then uh, John Gonzalez, the director, uh, Jeff Simon, who was assistant to everybody out there, just phenomenal. And then we had uh, the uh, work with Brent Musburger and Dick Enberg and Ahmad Rashad and Jason Benetti, who I did a Chicago White Sox baseball game with. <laughs> oh my gosh, that was wild as can be. One of the one of the real privileges of my life. I was in Los Angeles a lot. I'm a San Diego guy, you know, Los Angeles. You grew up in Orange County, uh, but where do you live now? I'm in San Diego. All right. Beautiful. Yeah, I'm right down oh, the street. Right down the street. So uh, I, I used to go to the Padres games at Westgate Park, down where Fashion Valley is right now. And, uh, you know, you just ride your bike down there, you just lean it up against the fence, and the ushers would just wave you on in. But, you know, Chico Ruiz, uh, that was my guy. And Tony Perez, those were my guys. Tony Perez. Yeah. Perez, we've had Perez on the Boone podcast. Really? Yeah. yeah. Tony's a good man. He, uh, my years in Cincinnati when I played for the Reds, Tony would be one of those guys always come back. You know, always one of the big red machine guys coming back. I just I just did an outing with him uh, last summer. We They had a uh, Reds legend game, and I got yeah. to see Tony. It's always he's one of my him, one of my favorite Tony, guys. Tell Tony hello. I will. He's still alive, right? He's still, he's still alive, doing great. You, you lose track during COVID because people are dropping like flies. And, and so anyway, and during the 80s, I was spending a lot of time in Los Angeles. And and, uh, and I got to be really good friends with uh, Tim Leary and George Carlin. And George was, he was putting on the shows all the time, uh, all around, uh, you know, the central part of Los Angeles, not downtown the way it is now, but more in Hollywood and Sunset Strip and that that part of Los Angeles here. But just, he was just so fun, George Carlin was all the time. And, and, and the way he saw the world, it was just brilliant. And, and, you know, his descriptions about the diamonds and the parks and the, the pastoral settings of baseball games. Nobody's really ever described basketball that way, you know. And the manager's wearing the same uniform as the players do. Who's up? We need some relief here. Sacrifice. Yeah, the stretch with the seventh inning. Go home. <laughs> <laughs> if it rains, we don't play. That never happens here in San Diego. So the other day, I was in Wisconsin. I was in Wisconsin on a corporate deal. And it was uh, super fun. I had a great time. We got a call call in, in the middle of the night uh, from Bob Costas, who I worked with as well. And I apologize for the people who I've left out of the list of the broadcasters. It's a long list and they're just all great. And Bob's right at the top. And, uh, and so uh, Bob calls me up in the middle of the night and said, Hey, Bill, there's going to be a dinner in Orange County and it's about good stuff. And can you come? And I said, okay, Bob, it's you. I'll come, but I'm in the middle of Wisconsin. And when's the event? He says tomorrow night. Oh, great. And so I spend a long time on the phone, changing my travel and get up in the middle of the morning. And, you know, middle of the morning, that means like 3 a.m. And, and get to get to what, what airport was like Milwaukee through Denver to San Diego. I had a meeting with ESPN when I got off the plane here in San Diego. Then I got in the car and drove up. It was going to be in Newport Beach. And so. And I get there and there's like a thousand people at this dinner and they're honoring Bob Costas. I have no idea what's happening. 
And he's got Roy Firestone there. He's got Rod Carew there and Freddie Lynn and Jim Palmer and all my buddies and Doug DeSinsays and uh, uh, Janet Evans, uh, the swimmer. And, and they're going to honor Bob and raise money uh, for youth sports. All the stuff that we grew up in and that have made us who we are, right? So it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, and then they asked me to speak. Oh, my gosh. And, and the times we used to have with Bob, because, uh, you know, the, when you talk about greatness, you know, Bob, Bob Costas is right there. And, and then when Bob was speaking, Kareem walks in the door. And Kareem, you talk about greatness, and Bob Costas together standing there. It, it was fantastic. And then so everybody gave their little talk and, uh, about how wonderful your sports are and, and, and raised a lot of money. Fantastic. And then it was Bob's turn to speak. And he put on a show like I have never seen before in the corporate broadcast world, in the corporate business speaking circuit world. Because, you know, everything Bob has done since he was very young has been on network television. And so it's all there. And so Bob would start telling a story when it was his turn to give his speech. He'd start telling a story after having to correct all the mistakes that everybody else was making along the way, because he would just jump up and improv like George Carlin and just do these remarkable presentations just right off the cuff and just be perfect at everything and then sit back down. But when it's finally his turn, he'd start telling the stories that he wanted to make a point about. And, and then he would point to the soundboard and they would roll the clip that he was talking about. And, and, and then it would deliver this perfect punchline that Bob had used in live television that was archived there by all the different networks that he worked for and all the different things that he did, the interview shows and the Olympics and football and baseball and basketball, just literally everything. And it was just such a dazzling performance. And everybody just goes, oh, my gosh, we've never done anything like that. I was there, Bob Costas, a, a true giant, maybe the biggest giant of them all. But Dick Enberg, who I spent a lifetime with, you know, Dick Enberg, phenomenal broadcaster, as decorated and awarded a broadcaster as there's ever been. Dick was our local broadcaster at UCLA for the basketball team. I worked with him for decades. And Dick Enberg was the closest human being to John Wooden in terms of being like John Wooden that I have ever come across. And, and the way that both Dick Enberg and Bob Costas, they love broadcasting baseball. And they, I tell you, the, the, the one game that I did with Jason Benetti, the White Sox Angels game, I, I had a lot of fun there. And uh, Jason Benetti, that guy, has he been on the Boone podcast? He has not been on. You got to get him on. The guy is a genius. A is he? genius, man. He just, he's, He's like, he's like uh, uh, Gary Kasparov. He's like Magnus Carlson. Just you know, they're just they're playing it's like Larry Bird. Did you watch the Joe Montana Cool Under Pressure movie? Yes, that was spectacular. And I would I was staggered, Brett, staggered because I you know I'm a huge Joe Montana fan. Just love the guy. And uh, I was there at Stanford uh, going to law school in the early '80s when he joined the 49ers. And so and they're that the 49ers practice field was right there at Stanford on the Stanford campus. And so I got to know all those guys and all the USC guys and the UCLA guys, and the NFL guys, and my brother was still alive then. So I knew all these guys and, and then they, they just become the best of the best the 49ers do. And Joe Namath is just at a totally different deal. 
And then I'm watching this movie and I'm learning all this stuff about him. And it was so disheartening in that his coaches treated him really bad. And I, and I didn't like that. I mean, I, you know, when you're a coach, your job, when you're a leader, your job is to make things better. Your job is to be the light and guide people, be the human forklift, be the, the human solar panel to just make things and people better. And here are these guys were like Joe Montana, I mean, this phenomenal player and talent and an incredible performer. And, and and they're playing all these mind games with them. And I I just I just was brokenhearted. It was just it's devastatingly sad, and I'll never forget. And you you've played for some some legendary guys, and, and yeah, you mentioned well, six some, of my coaches. Six of my coaches are in the Hall of Fame. Many more would be if I hadn't been injured all the time. I've spent half my adult life in the in the uh, hospital, and of the fourteen years I was in the NBA, I missed nine and a half full seasons. But to see the NBA where it is today, and to see it now grossing ten billion dollars, and that's big time, and you know, it's not as big time as Nike. I mean, Nike by itself, it makes more money every year than all the sports combined, than NFL, than NBA, Major League Baseball, NHL, and the NCAA. Nike makes more than all those five entities make combined. And so they're doing things. And that's why Phil Knight's the most important person in the history of all sports, while David Stern's the most important person in the history of uh, basketball. I don't know who the most important person in the history of baseball is. Uh, I, I'm going to have to leave that, that to you and Jason Benetti to figure it out. <laughs> you get to, when you're finishing at Felix, we, we you know, it's, it's Felix. obvious where you went. Or, I'm sorry, Helix. Yeah. You know, I, I know you, I know you go on to UCLA and yeah. I, and, and I heard a, a man by the name of Dennis, Dennis Crum. When he's, talk, when he's yeah. talking about a young Bill Walton, says best yeah. high school player I've ever seen. Yeah. Was it always going to be UCLA for you? Did you consider oh, other colleges? There was no other choice. I, I, that's what I wanted. And uh, I, I love UCLA's history with the uh, engagement, the, 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 the civic engagement of its players, the, uh, the, all the, the record breakers, the, the, uh, norm breakers. I mean, whether it's Jackie Robinson, whether it's Ralph Bunch, whether it's, uh, uh, gosh, I can't think of the basketball player who was the first everything. Uh, this was just before John Wooden. Uh, the name will pop up into the smoking crater that's my mind. And then Arthur Ashe and Rayford Johnson and Walt Hazard and Kareem and Sidney Wicks and all my heroes. And, you know, Gary Beaver just phenomenal. And just love all those guys. And I, I love UCLA. I was, I was just so happy they wanted me. But I, I was a very confident basketball player. I never lacked for confidence in basketball. I lacked for confidence in life because I couldn't speak. And I couldn't go up to anybody and say something. And that uh, nothing has changed my life more than learning how to speak. And uh, I, I have a lot of friends that tell me, Bill, we used to like you a lot more before you learned how to talk. <laughs> Uh, you're I mean, the, your credentials at college, they're, they're ridiculous. I was looking at it. I'm like, is that a typo? He's three time college player of the year. I've never seen that. I, at, I at college. We, we had, look, I, I had great coaches, great culture, great foundation, great uh, teammates, you know, uh, John Wooden, you know, he told me at the very beginning, 
he said, Bill, I know what everybody else is promising you, but because, you know, you let your imagination run wild, what they were offering me uh, coming out of high school. But I, I was not interested in that. I used to think I had a vivid imagination, but that was before I met some of these other guys. And, uh, and they changed the entire spectrum of what was going on out there. But uh, I wanted to go to UCLA. John Wooden came to the house. Uh, my mom just passed away. She lived there for 69 years, right there in the banks of Lake Murray. And it was just fantastic. I was the last person to see her. It was January 8th. She was 23 days shy of being 95. And she had come as a young girl uh, from Brooklyn. Her father had died and uh, at an early age. And so her mom and my mom, and my mom came to San Diego. I said, we're, we're out of Brooklyn. We're going to San Diego. And it was, I'm so glad they did because this is the greatest place on earth. I mean, this, this has got everything and you can do everything every single day. And the, the business here is fantastic. Uh, one of the things I'm involved in, I've never been busier in my life, but one of the things I'm involved with uh, a nonprofit organization called San Diego Sport Innovators, where we create companies, jobs, and grow commerce here. I'm a volunteer. When a lot of us are volunteers, we have four paid employees, but we represent the 1,200 sports and active lifestyle companies here in San Diego that generate an economic impact of more than $6 billion a year. Because everybody like you, like me, we all want to live here, but we also need jobs. And so guys come and they realize you got to get a job. So they start companies, you know, whether it's a technology company, whether it's an equipment company, whether it's a supply company, an apparel company, a training company, you name it. And so uh, our San Diego Sport Innovators, we represent them all. And, and because of COVID and because of the modern technology advances that we've had, particularly driven by COVID, uh, we are now able to expand our reach to it being global. So, you know, we're not just limited to the companies here in Southern California and particularly Southern Orange County and San Diego. Because now we're helping companies uh, throughout Europe and throughout Australia and Asia. And it, it's just fantastic. How long have you been involved with that? Uh, ever since I came back for, out from my spine failure and collapse, I missed four and a half years of my life uh, when uh, starting on February 24th, 2008. Not that I remember the date, but I was uh, getting off a plane. I fly a lot and I still do, uh, much to my doctor's dismay, but I'm feeling fantastic. But February 24th, 2008, I got off the plane. I couldn't move. And I, I just, I, you know, flying 600, 700,000 miles a year, 200 nights a year plus on the road all the time. And uh, I broke my back when I was playing for UCLA in college, January 7th, 1974. Not that I remember the date, but I spent then the next four and a half years on the ground unable to move, unable to function, unable to work, unable to do anything. I did have spine surgery at the one-year mark of that, and uh, I'm all better now. But it was the longest, hardest, toughest thing I've ever done in my life. I didn't think I was going to make it. I was going to commit suicide. My life was not worth it. I had no life. I just All I could do was lie on the ground and wish, wish beyond any wish you've ever had that this pain would go away. That I can only describe the pain as being submerged into a vat of scalding acid that had electrifying current running through it, and you could never, ever get out. Just that burning nerve pain that goes throughout your whole body. There's, there's just nothing, nothing that can compare to it. More people commit suicide from spine pain than from any other medical 
challenge malady. And so I spend a ton of time to this day mentoring, counseling, talking people back uh, off the edge of the cliff. And it, it, it's, it, it's uh, incredibly rewarding as it is working for San Diego Sport Innovators and all this stuff. You know, I only do things that make me, you know, feel good about life. And, you know, I'm, and I've been lucky in that uh, uh, I've been able to, you know, to have a great life. And we have uh, six wonderful children, all happily married, 14 grandchildren. And my parents have passed, but Lori's are just right across the way there. In the, 99 and 94. The, 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 they're the coolest people ever, man. And, you know, you know, like my parents, you know, they, they uh, went through the depression, went through World War II. And so the, they don't sit around and complain. No, they, they say that, you know, and when I'm as a mentor myself, because I mentor a lot of people who are in trouble, who are struggling, health, uh, mental challenges, uh, physical challenges, business challenges. And I always tell them, hey, man, look, I'll, I will listen to your whining and your complaining and your excuses one time. But from then on, I want to hear about what you're doing about it. I want to hear a positive response. I want to hear the actions that you're taking that are going to improve your situation and ultimately make other people's situations better. Get out of the problem. Get into the solution. There you go. You sound like you should be a coach or a broadcaster. Or I, a lo- <laughs> I love it. Or an executive. How about I, all the great baseball players in San Diego, though? I mean, come on. We talked about we talked about Ted, but Alan Trammell. Alan Tra- Trammell. Yeah, Trammell's yeah. a Boone podcast guy. He's yeah, been on Adrian the- Gonzalez. San Diego. Adrian East Gonzalez. Lake. So yeah. East Lake. That's in the Chula Vista, man. Oh my! We we, God. we got a lot of guys. We got Katze. We got. Trevor Hoffman's uh, in San. Oh, Trevor! There's, there's too many to name. Is Trevor from San? Trevor's not from San Diego. Uh, Trevor's from Orange County. He grew okay. up. We played high school against each other, and then he wow. came down to the San Diego area. What an awesome dude! And how great are the Padres, man? I'm a Padre fan. Padres are are good. We're getting Tatis back the second half of the season. So uh, I love I love Petco Park and what the Seidlers have done. What Ron Fowler did to yep. just make it all happen. I mean. To know all these people, I love to go to Petco Park and watch the games, particularly when I get to sit in Peter Seidler and Tom Seidler's box. That's owner. right. The owner's box, right? That, right behind home plate. That's a good spot there. And our band is going to play there. I play in a band. Really? Oh, yeah. Our band's going to play there. What's, August- it, what's the name of your band? The Electric Waste Band. Electric Waste, W-A-S-T-E. We're, uh, uh, we're into uh, recycling and renewable energy. But, uh the electric waste band. We're going to play. What's August the date? 2nd, yeah, August second. Okay. The park in the park in the park, right in the back there, and uh, we're going to be playing. We played there just before COVID hit, and it was uh, it was the greatest moment of my life. That uh, that is that is very cool. And remind me at the end of this podcast, we got to tell that to the Boone Podcast listeners to get them out there. Right, August second, Petco Park. We're ready to go. I started with the electric waste band. 30 plus years ago, I started as a fan down in Ocean Beach at Winston's. I might and, even have to show up for that, Billy. And then you're, you're my guest. You just come on and bring your whole bring your whole group of friends. We'll have a great time. And so uh, down at Winston's, I used to go all the time. And uh, and then one night they were shorthanded. And so they uh, they asked me if I would help them move some of the equipment around. So I became a roadie for a long time. And then they asked me to, to be a percussionist. And then they uh, gave me a microphone. And then after they gave me the microphone, uh, uh, quite a bit after they gave me the microphone, they actually turned it on. 
And so now we're just, uh, I play a lot with them and uh, we're going to be playing uh, a, a lot in the upcoming weeks and months. And they keep going. They're all professionals, but I, I'm just, uh, I'm just the prop. I'm the lucky, happy guy. And you talk about teaching and, and mentoring and yeah. probably the ultimate. You've mentioned them already at the top of the show, John Wooden. Oh, my God. Every, everybody knows the, the uh, historical run of UCL, UCLA basketball. Like I mentioned, you had three college it's, players of the year. not two, into that. No, two, no, no. That's what I wanted to ask you, though, is everybody knows John Wooden, the coach. But I know you had a special relationship with him. I want to know about John Wooden, the man. I, I read something very interesting, and you can probably attest to it, that his wife, Nellie, yeah. uh, he'd write a letter to her every day. Right. And, so, and inter- that's so interesting me, to me. All so, right. I'm going to so let you tell that. In. So I was Coach Wooden's easiest recruit. I became his worst nightmare. And I drove the poor guy to an early grave at 99. Now, his wife, who was his high school sweetheart and the only girl he ever dated, although she was quick to point out that she had dated other guys. and But Coach Wooden loved Nell. And he called her Nellie, Nell, and uh, we were terrified of the coach and even more so of his wife because we were teenagers, right? And they were in their mid-60s at the time. And so, uh, but we, we knew we knew that he had our best interest at heart. He was just, you know, he, he was just a lot different than we all were. We were all Southern California guys in the 60s and the 70s, and we were living the dream. And having the time of our life. And we certainly didn't want a 65-year-old guy looking over our shoulder at all times. Because he took his job very, very seriously. And while he was this remarkable teacher and coach, I don't think he knew. I don't think he was aware of how great a teacher that he was. And the impact that he had. He was not into credit. He was not into recognition. He was not into accolades. He was not into acknowledgement. He was a man of action. And he worked to the very last day of his life. I was there. And I was there when in 1985, when Nell got sick. And she had to spend a lot of time in the hospital. And it was the hospital right off the Hollywood freeway between downtown LA, which has completely been redone. It's remarkable what uh, what they have done with downtown Los Angeles and all the founders of California, Southern California, what they've done in terms of building it all up and Hollywood, the Hollywood Bowl, and where we're going to see John Fogarty coming up in, uh, in a, less than a, in about a week now, a week from Saturday night. And it's almost Saturday night, John Fogarty. And I, t- I hope he's going to play that. The last Saturday night we saw him, he didn't play it. And I was uh, quite disappointed, but uh, I'll get over it. So anyway, she was in the hospital right off the freeway on the south side of the 101 freeway. And I would, I was in LA a lot. So I'd go every day to the hospital and sit with him. And, and we just, you know, I tried to help him pass the time because she was in the hospital and she was in the, in the room and she couldn't be seen by anybody. And we just sit there and laugh and cry and think and talk and reminisce and dream and do all the stuff that you do when you're, when you know, when your spouse is in the hospital and going to die. And so one day I get there at the appointed and regular time. He's not there. And uh, so that, and the nurse came up to me and said, Bill, Nell passed. Nell passed this morning. And so the coach went home. 
And so it was just very sad. And, you know, he lived another 25 years after that. And he never stopped moving, never stopped working, and just was incredible, the, the schedule that he kept. And he was a man of action. But what he did, she died on the 21st of the month. And every 21st day of every month for 25 years, he would handwrite a letter to Nell, a love letter to Nell. And then he would place it on the bed where she slept. And then when he got enough of them, he would take them out to the cemetery and put them on her grave. And it was just an absolute incredible relationship. And, you know, she, because he, he always wanted, you know, he knew he had to be strict. He knew he had to be tough. He was demanding. He was challenging, but he was fair most of the time. And he was all is super fun. It was upbeat. We couldn't wait to get to practice, but she was the guy who was, she was the person now who was, you know, there to, to, to be the gatekeeper because everybody wanted something from John Wood and, and he would never turn anybody down, but uh, uh, she was, she was fantastic. He was incredible. And uh, I just, uh, I remember uh, when he died and uh, I was in Los Angeles when he died and I'd been to the hospital and I got to say my goodbyes. And then uh, on the day he died, it was uh, a national television broadcast for uh, the NBA finals, Lakers and Celtics. And Kareem and I were both there and Kareem and I both uh, uh, spoke to the Staples crowd and to the national intergalactic television audience for that Celtic Laker finals game about uh, how wonderful John Wooden was. And I talked about that night, I talked about how, uh, how he was tough, fierce, demanding, challenging, exacting, humble, giving, caring, loving, concerned, fair, fun, but that over time, he changed. He changed because of the circumstances in his life. In the 1920s and early 30s, through the 30s, really, he was the first great basketball player in the history of the sport. His high school games, he lived in a town of 4,000 people. The high school gym sat 10,000 people. When he played, Every game was sold out with 10,000 people, and there'd be 15,000 more people outside trying to get in, and they would put it on the radio, I believe, for the people outside. This is as a high school player. And then he goes to Purdue and changes the whole sport of basketball. But then, like everybody else, everybody, he could no longer play as he, as he got older, and he got injuries that kept him from going. And so then he became a teacher. He needed money. He needed a job. He had a family, a nail, and two children. Uh, Jim and got Jim and Nan, and so they were. So he went and got a high school teaching job to teach English because his major went from engineering to English because he could have the summers off in college, being an English major, and he could work to get money to pay for his life. And so they were paying him as the high school English teacher. They were paying him thirty five hundred dollars a year. That was his yearly salary. $3,500. And he couldn't make it on $3,500. So he went into the school and he negotiated a deal that he would become the athletic director, the baseball coach, which was his first love, and then the basketball coach too, which was, he was best at basketball. And so uh, and he said, okay, you do those three things, we'll pay you an extra $1,500 for the year. 
And Coach Wooden said, okay, I could 5,000, we can make it. And so he coaches there two years of high school at uh, in Dayton, Kentucky, and then he gets the job back in Indiana at, at uh, South Bend Central High School, right on the, on the edge of Notre Dame's campus. And he, he's there for nine seasons. And then he gets, he gets to be the coach, uh, his first coaching job he, uh, at Indiana State Teachers College, which is where Larry Bird was the uh, uh, ultimate uh, star player for that team. But, you know, Larry was so remarkable. And Larry quit, his, Larry quit basketball to be, uh, because, you know, he, he didn't like the situation he was in. He went, that's how much he disliked it. He quit basketball and went home and spent a year as a garbage collector riding on the back of the truck collecting the garbage. That's another story for another day. So Coach Wooden then has, develops this remarkable basketball team in right at the end of World War II. Where he, Coach Wooden was in the Navy during World War II but never left the continental United States. Uh, he was uh, keeping things together here at home. And so then while he's at Indiana State Teachers College, they're winning all these games and like torching everybody, right? And in those days, they, the the college tournaments were all about uh, invitation. And the people who were running the tournaments would call up all the different teams, say, hey, will you come play in our tournament? And so they wanted Coach Wooden's teams because he was so famous as a player. And now he was developing into this remarkable coach where the teams were just fun and fast. And I mean, Golden State Warrior type basketball, right? Shoot, press, fast break, and beautiful passing. And so they, you know, they call him up and say, Coach, will you please bring your team to our national championship tournament? He said, Fine, I'd love to come. And then they make the deal and everything on the phone. And then at the last bit, as they're saying goodbye, the guy who's running the tournament, he was saying, he said, hey, Coach Wooden, just one last thing. Uh, we, are, we are aware that you have some black players on your team. And please, don't bring the black guys. They're not welcome here. And so Coach Wooden would, would say, oh, okay, well, if we, if we can't all come, and if we can't all stay in the same hotel, if we can't all eat in the same restaurants, none of us should come. And so they didn't go. And then there was the opportunity and he came to UCLA, which changed everything. And that was an epic story in itself about a, 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 a missed phone call because of the weather coming out of Minnesota. He wanted, he's a big 10 guy. He wanted to go to the, he wanted to go to Minnesota. UCLA was just getting started. He not a California guy, uh, but Minnesota failed to meet the time commitment because of the snowstorm in the spring that knocked down the telephone line, Coach Wooden thought they weren't interested. UCLA was scheduled to call, to, uh, call second, and he was going to turn them down. Minnesota didn't call because they couldn't get through because of the line. UCLA called, and Coach Wooden accepted the job. And then right after he accepted the job, Minnesota was able to complete the call, and Coach Wooden said, I've already given my word, and the rest is history. Although when he got to UCLA, he didn't like it at all. And after one year, he went into the athletic director, read, read uh, Saunders or Sanders, I'm kidding. Sanders, I think, Saunders, Sanders, read. He was the football coach, became athletic director. And Coach Wooden told him, we don't like it here. We want to go back to the Midwest. And Red, the athletic director, looked at him and said, Johnny, when you – because all the old guys called him Johnny. We, we called him Coach. <laughs> Later on, we would tease him and call him Johnny, but we called him Coach. And so he and Red looked at Coach and said, Johnny, when you came out here, you wanted a three-year contract. 
because you wanted the stability of bringing your family for the first time ever to the West Coast and to Los Angeles. And so, Coach, I'm just going to remind you that you signed a three-year contract. And that's all Red had to say. And Coach Wooden looked at him and said, I will honor that contract. And he stayed for the next 27 years and set all the records and changed everything. And I was the luckiest guy in the world. And I, I was the luckiest guy. I spent uh, 43 years of my life with him, Red. Uh, three as a high school player. He, he called every Monday night for three years. He called every, came to our games, came to our house, and uh, they, they were the most professional, the most ordinary. Denny Crum did the vast majority of the work, but Coach Wooden was always there. And and then the four years I played for him, which was just it, it was spectacular. Every day, man, I'm just with this this guy. And, and, and then, uh, the but the best years by far were the 36 years after after uh, we stopped playing for him. Because then he became your friend. Because when, he was, when you were playing for him, he wasn't your friend. No, man, he had a job to do. And he took that job very seriously, man. He was driving you. His, his job was to make us great at what we were doing. More importantly, make us great as human beings. And then as we, we're going through this 36-year deal with Coach Wooden, and, you know, we're doing so many different things. I mean, you name it, we were doing it. And we spent a lot of time at his house, and there'd be a, a, a core group of guys, you know, eight to ten people always rotating, but a lot of them the same all the time. Andy Hill, Mike Warren, Lucius Allen, Keith Erickson, uh, Jamal Wilkes, uh, uh, Kenny Washington. I'm, I'm gonna, I know I'm going to leave guys out. It's not intentional. I just I – just, I have no memory, right? And so uh, – We'd be sitting there. We'd go to Vince for breakfast on on Ventura Boulevard in Encino, and then we'd go back to his house, right? And he would, and he, because when, when we played for him, Brett, he never talked about himself, never. When we played for him, he never talked about anything other than us. He just he he, he said, "Okay, my job. I got twelve guys here. My job is to make these guys great, and that's all I'm going to do." He never went out and gave corporate speeches. He was never, never mispracticed. Never was out doing media stuff. He, this guy, he was our basketball coach. I mean, when you like, when I need a quote, when I'm feeling down, I need something inspirational. I, I, I go and look for Albert Einstein quotes, Franklin Roosevelt quotes, Mark Twain quotes, Robert Hunter quotes, Bob Dylan quotes, or John Wooden quotes. He, he was our college basketball coach, and and so he would be sitting there. In, you know, in his house, in his condo there in Encino, we called it the mansion on Margate. It was far from a mansion, but it was a it was a good moniker. And so he'd be telling these stories that were beyond belief, and most of them about baseball because he loved baseball. Uh, in fact, when the Pittsburgh Pirates in the eighties, the owner of the team called him up and said, "I, I want you to be the coach of our team." And I, you know, the manager of the team, and and Coach Wooden said, "What are you talking about?" I'm 85 years old. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he said, I don't care. I just want you to be the coach of the manager of our team. And money's not an issue. You name your price and I'll pay it. And the coach wouldn't just call me, said, you know, I'm it's very nice. I'm flattered, but I'm going to have to uh turn it down respectfully uh, because I'm not qualified to do this. And there are so many people who really want the job, and I don't. And so 
Uh, he could do anything. I mean, he was that kind of person. Uh, you know, he's like he, he's he sounds like a special guy. So, and, so he and would I, tell all the, so he would tell all these stories, right? Mostly about baseball, which we could not believe the stuff he would tell in, in intricate detail. You know, who was playing, where it was, what the day of the week was, what the weather was like, the spectacular play, triple plays, you know, home runs on the last pitch of the game. Just in phenomenal stuff that you would say, there's no way this ever happened. And then in 2000, the Internet came along and smartphones came along. In the early days of Blackberries, ultimately from 2007 when the iPhone came along. And so... Then we're all sitting there listening to these, just being regaled by these magnificent stories of glory. And, and there'd be somebody in the back of the room fact-checking what he was saying. And he was always 100% accurate. Never any embellishment, never any exaggeration. It was truly remarkable. We love that guy. What do you What do you think? You say you drove him nuts. I know you yeah. were you were kind of a crazy kid. You were protested. You were uh, leading sit-ins I, at the dean's office. I'm an engaged citizen and still am <laughs> to this day. I care. Right. I never miss an election. I'm involved in everything going on. I want our world to be as great as it possibly can be and include as many people as possible. I'm about inclusion. I'm about diversity. I'm about equity. I'm about fairness about opportunity, and I'm willing to stand up and fight for that. And when I, when I say that, I just am so proud of Kareem, who was like the greatest player I ever played against. And Coach Wooden, Coach Wooden, as great as he was as a player, and he was the best, as great as he was as a coach, he was the best, he was more impactful once he retired because his audience was so much bigger, and he was speaking to the world then. And that is the same career path that Kareem has taken. Kareem, the best player. Kareem, the best player at, at every level. And, and then now, what he's doing now with his Kareem.substack.com and writing and speaking and videos and uh, all the different things, he is, having, he, he is doing exactly what Coach Wooden did, having greater impact greater impact as a in his post playing career than he ever did as, as the most dominant player ever. I mean, Kareem has all the records and it's just phenomenal. Anybody ever played against him would say he was the greatest player they ever played against. Yeah. Including me. That, that was, you know, that was my time when I was a kid. So you asked me why I was, why I was his worst nightmare. Right. You said, you said that you were, you, uh, you I, drove, I, you drove, I, you drove him crazy. I did. I, I drove him to an early grave at 99. Right, right. At 99. Yeah. So I always wanted to know why, you know, why I had to cut my hair, why I had to shave, why I had to wear the clothes he wanted me to wear, why Nixon was president, why we were in Vietnam and why couldn't the cheerleaders be in my hotel room on the road trips? <laughs> and he would just, and he would, he would listen to everything I tried to say. I'm a stutterer, right? I couldn't say it, but he would listen very patient and he would finally have enough and he would roll his eyes and wave his hands and he'd lean into me and say, Bill, it's all fine and good that you think that way, but I'm the coach. And while we've enjoyed having you, we're going to miss you. And that's all it, he said that, Every day to me, and, and I and there was there was nothing more important than being part of the team. I, and I and we all knew 
one of the reasons, you know, because he, Neil Young has a song. Neil Young's got a lot of songs, but the song in particular right now is, Are You Passionate? And uh, and the chorus kind of goes like, are you living like you talk? Are you dreaming as if you're going to the top? And that was John Wooden. John Wooden, he lived the talk. And we never doubted for a minute that if we didn't do exactly what he said, that we're we're out of there. And uh, oh my gosh, uh, there was there was one guy. And this is a longer story than we have time for because I'm running out. But uh, there was one guy that uh, didn't do uh, he, he he did the right thing, but it wasn't the right thing for John Wood. And and this guy ended up in Tasmania which is an island off the southern coast of Australia (laughs) (laughs) and used to be uh, one of the worst locations of the penal colonies that the British had established in, in Australia when uh, please read the fatal shore. Oh my gosh. Robert Hughes, uh, just the, the discovery, the settlement, uh, the penal colonies of Australia, just a remarkable book. I, I was so lucky. My mom was a librarian and then, I met David Halberstam uh, as I met Marty Klickman, as I, you know, all my coaches and all the incredibly famous people that I've been, uh, and interesting people and people who cared about other people. And so David Halberstam not only uh, wrote a book, The Breaks of the Game, about our, our Blazer team, uh, uh, but uh, we, we became friends. And then and he would always recommend books to me whenever I was going. And, who, and whatever team was surging to the top, whether it was San Antonio or Chicago or Houston, he'd, he'd recommend books about those places, about the history of these places, right? And the people that you know founded them and everything. And then uh, and then he'd pick up the newspaper and I was in the hospital I was going in for operations all the time. I've had 39 orthopedic operations and he would read in the newspaper that I was going to have another operation. So he'd go down to his local bookstore and he'd just walk around and fill up a box and mail me this box of fantastic books that I would just devour because all I could do was lie in bed and waiting for the operation to heal. And so uh, I'm, I'm a very avid reader to this very day. Very cool. Your number one pick, Trailblazers. You win the championship in '77. I believe you're the you're the MVP in '78. You yeah. later in your career, though, as a veteran player, you go to the Boston Celtics, right. and you get to play. And you mentioned him earlier. He's one of my favorites. Uh, growing up was Larry Bird. You play on that championship team in 1986. Your second championship. Tell me the difference between doing it as a young kid. In the in the prime of his career, where you win the MVP that the next year versus the second championship you win as a veteran player, I believe that year you're sixth man of the year, yeah. And you and you're playing kind of a you're a role player. You're not the man in the middle of the action. You're you're actually the sixth man. Explain the differences of those two championships. Uh, completely different, but I have learned over the course of my now 69 years to not rank, rate, or compare things, just to enjoy them all. Particularly concerts, coaches, children, championships, and congratulations. And so I've been part of some of the greatest teams ever. I also spent six years of my life with Donald Sterling. So I know the difference between the top and the bottom. And David Halberstam was instrumental in me going to Stanford Law School when I was told I would never play again. While I was there in the early 80s, I had, this was 40 plus years ago, 
I had experimental pioneering surgery on my foot that had never worked before. And the doctors said, this is not about playing basketball, Bill. You've got to stop and you've got to, you know, get on with the, with your life uh, because the op- the next option, if this doesn't work, is we're going to have to cut your foot off. And I'm 28 years old. And so I stopped, but then I had the operation and it worked. And so while I was at Stanford, I got able to start playing again. And Halberstam was the guy that steered me to Stanford. And then I come back and play a little bit more for Donald Sterling. And I realize that there's no future there. And so David Halberstam finds that out. And he calls me up and says, hey, man, you got to go to the Celtics. And he, had, you know, he's a New York City guy, Washington, D.C. guy. Uh, but he had gone to college at Harvard. And so he and he knew the Celtics and he knew how great the life was there. I had no idea. I'm, a, I'm like you, man. I'm a Southern California boy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm a, if the Pilgrims had landed just over here in Mission Beach, everything over here east of the Rocky Mountains would be a big national park, but wilderness areas. But so now, uh, you know, I ended up uh, uh, buying my way onto the Boston Celtics. And I got there, and it was fantastic. And David told me where to live. I lived in Cambridge, just right down the street from Harvard Square and in Harvard. And uh, it was fantastic. And I got to play with Larry Bird, who was the greatest player I ever played with. I got to play with Kevin McHale, uh, who was the second greatest low post player I ever played against. And I got to play with Robert Parrish, uh, who was the foundation of the team and the anchor, just a, a fundamental guy who was right there and allowed all the craziness on the perimeter to exist because he was holding down the middle. And then Dennis Johnson, who was there on, on uh, April 18th, 1978, the day that uh, I took a pain dealing injection in my foot and the undiagnosed stress fracture in my foot, uh, the bone split in half. And uh, Danny Ainge, who I go back to his high school days when he was coming up and playing with us on the Blazers when he was in high school in Eugene, and he was just phenomenal. Then he belongs in the Hall of Fame. We had all these other guys on the bench, Scott Wedman, Jerry Seasting, Rick Carlisle, uh, and Sam Vincent, David Thirdfield, Greg Kite. And we had Casey Jones, who we loved as a coach. We would do anything for the guy. And then Red Auerbeck was our boss. And, you know, Red was like John Wooden. Red was like Al Davis. And, you know, and to, to know Al Davis and to know John Madden from my days in the Bay Area. And just it's just fantastic. And that movie that... Uh, ESPN did about Roselle and Al Davis, which was fantastic because while free agency has been the greatest thing in the world of sports, in, in world of professional sports, in terms of making it better for everybody, franchise free agency, which Al Davis fought, fought for, that's the second most important thing for the success of professional sports. And to know these people and to learn from them, and it, it was just such a joy. I, I knew the basketball would be great. I had no idea how great the life would be. And the friends I've met back there who I still in touch with today and uh, go back every year to the Basketball Hall of Fame induction ceremonies. I've been most fortunate to have presented eight players into the Hall of Fame. Dr. J leads the, leads the way. He's doubled, tripled up everybody else. Uh, Dr. J is so happy in today's news that uh, Dr. J and, and, and his ABA teammates were able to get a, a, a pension commitment from the NBA. And so uh, what the NBA has done with the pension uh, for the players and the health care benefits for the players, I know that in baseball, you guys have by far the best. Yeah. Uh, 
But basketball is has come a long, long way. And it's a game-changing situation because uh, those of us who play basketball their whole lives, there's no way we can get insurance. I mean, the insurance companies look at us and they say, get out of here. They go running the other way. You're on your own, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, the NBA, the, the Players Association, Chris Paul, uh, he, he led the charge there and convinced the NBA of, of, of doing the right thing. And so they've done that. And, and, and well, we're all doing a lot better because of that. And, and my health, my health today is better than it's ever been and, uh, because of my uh, I found when when I when I went down in the, on February twenty fourth two thousand eight and, and couldn't show up to work for the first time in eighteen years. Uh, uh, Jim Gray uh, looked around, and said, "Where's Bill?" And they said, "Well, he's on the ground. He can't move. He's not going to be able to work." And so Jim called me every day. Jim found my doctor. Jim found Steve Darkin at UC San Diego. He found the medical device company that was pioneering the technological, scientific, and procedural advancements uh, in spine surgery that have saved my life and countless others. Because, you know, what happens when you have spine problems and the world learns about them? You are bombarded and overwhelmed with people coming to you and say, your life is over. Whatever you do, don't do surgery. There's no chance. You might as well just kill yourself now because you have no chance, no path forward. And so that's what happened to me. And then Jim found Steve Garfin and what they, what they're doing. It, it just completely changed my life. I mean, I'm just, I'm just doing fantastic. That's awesome. And, and, and what I'm a lot. And I'm going to be able to get to watch. I rode my bike for 35 miles this morning early, and I'm recovering from another stress fracture in my foot. And I was just, I, I tend to do a lot when I'm feeling great. And so, anyway, uh, just starting back on my bike, got 35 miles in, and tonight, I'm going to get to watch stage 18 of the Tour de France. The, the, Very, the, that I did. I promised I wouldn't tell the, you what happened. Last mountain day. And just before I came on this show, I got a call from a, one of our children, Nate, who was just fantastic. And what a story his life is. And, but Nate, Nate called just to say hello. And he was he was jumping into the Tour de France today. I said, Nate, please, I got to do this show with Brett. And, 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 I, and, and I'm not going to be able to watch the tour until later tonight on stage. So don't tell me. Don't said, tell me what happened. Dad, it was just epic. epic. I've been watching all the stages. There's 21 stages, and today is 18. The next three are flat. And so, you know, the the, diff, the separation comes, you know, in the mountains in, in, in bike racing. And it's uh, and I have no idea who won today. I've been I'm uh, up to speed on every, on first seventeen stages, but today is eighteen. And today's eighteen. I'm ready to roll. And I had John Fogarty coming in. I had an hour and a half with Brett Boone, and now I'm going Ant McCrossin, Nicholas Roach, the Tour de France, stage eighteen, Vingegaard and Tadej Pogacar head to head on on Hodakam. UCLA Hall of Fame number retired. Oh, enough of that. I'm no, no, no. I'm, I'm going to finish this, though. <laughs> College Hall of Fame, NBA Hall of Fame. You've lived a freaking full life. Uh, player, dad, broadcasting career forever, still going. Um, what marks were you hoping to make? And what marks do you want to make going forward? I'm just getting started, Brett. And... The lessons that I've learned, I'm a completely different person today than I was just getting started. You know, I, I started playing basketball at eight and basketball 
you know, so much fun. What, what a platform. What, what an opportunity that I've had to be part of so much goodness. And the things you learn, you know, John wouldn't, he had his thousands of maxims, billions of maxims that he would always deliver perfectly. And he, the one he wrote for me on the day I graduated, June 1974, to Bill Walton. It's the things you learn after you know it all that count. And so that sits on my other desk in the other part of the house. And so as I sit here and think back, and uh, Jerry's got a song, uh, Mission in the Rain. All the things I tried to do, but only did halfway. Some people, some folks would, some folks some folks would do anything to have just one dream come true. So many of my dreams have come true, but I got a lot more. I'm just getting started out here. And my job is to be that human forklift, that human solar panel. And my job is to shine the light and to be part of the light. And I was there. I was there at City Field. John Mayer became Michael Jordan. I was there. NBA. I was there. I was there at NBA seventy-five, which was over the top incredible. Is there NBA fifty, over the top incredible? And now I'm here on the Brett Boone podcast. Hoover High, Crawford High, Orange County, U.S. <laughs> Major League Baseball, and now a media mogul. Wow, media mogul. I, I, I can add you to my list of. Uh, I'll send you the list of the great broadcasters that I've worked with, and then yeah. you. Work it in in some other broadcast. And I, I'm going to put your name on the list. I love it. Okay, Bill, here we go. Bill Walton, thanks so much for coming I'm on Bill, the podcast. You're Brett. You tell your entire family thank you. Tell the Nettles family thank you. Tell the Williams family. You tell all these baseball guys who have had such an impact on my life in creating the culture that we have right here in San Diego that I have the privilege of growing up in and living because I was there. I was there at Hoover. I was there at San Diego High. I was there at Crawford High, there at Helix, just fantastic. I was there at Westgate Park. I was there at Petco Park. My mom went to Lane Field. And so it was just, I'm the luckiest guy ever. Never more so than to be part of your show, Brett. Thanks for having me. Bill Walton. the ride, roll on forever. Here we go. And as we do at the end of each Boone podcast, we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. And that voice is none other than Dan Levy. Dano, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor. Share the Boone podcast, neighbors and friends and all those that love sports. Make sure you subscribe never miss an episode and while you're at it give us a five star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show for all of us here on the moon podcast he is brett boone you can find him on social media at the moon 29 i'm dan levy b-a-s-s on air that is base on air all of my social medias thanks for listening we'll do it again soon have a great one